0: everyone to Really Bard Ideas, a series of podcasts where I, the Really Bard GM, talk about my current tabletop role-playing game campaigns and other nerdly goings on. Predominantly, the reason I've decided to begin this podcast is to share the adventures I have with my players. Tabletop RPGs are, in my mind, a collaborative storytelling experience, and I have such a great time with them that I wanted to share our stories with a larger audience. I really hope you guys enjoy hearing about them half as much as we do actually playing the game. In this first session, I'll discuss the setting of the campaign, the players themselves, and also take you through the first session of the campaign. Now this was begun a couple of years ago, so please forgive me if the details are a little fuzzy, but I'm sure we'll muddle through. So with that being said, let's get on with Really Bad Ideas, Session 1, Welcome to the Party Pal. Now. The campaign I'm going to talk to you about in this series of podcasts originally began using the Pathfinder first edition set of rules. The reason I began GMing using the Pathfinder rules is purely and simply, they are free. Paizo has done a really fantastic job with making these rules available online for everyone to download, and it's a really accessible system to get into if you don't have a lot of money. I got into the hobby after university, everyone's looking for a job, my friends groups moved across the country, so I thought it was a really good idea to play online and keep everyone together and keep everyone talking and it's been really great since then. The campaign I'm speaking to you about in this series of podcasts is my second campaign. Since then I've become a lot more comfortable as a GM, however the players in this campaign were brand new when they started and it's been really great for me to introduce a brand new set of players to the game now that I'm a bit more experienced myself. Pathfinder as a rule set is absolutely fantastic for its level of customization. It's been around so long and there's been so many books published that if you can imagine a build, there's a very good chance that you'll be able to build it. However, for new players that can also be very intimidating just purely because of the content. When this campaign started then, what I suggested to the players is that they only use material from the core rulebook, so classes, feats, that sort of thing. It helps introduce them to basic concepts before the more complicated ones arrive later. The campaign itself began set in Paizo's Galarian setting their official setting for Pathfinder 1st and 2nd edition. However, since then, I have begun to import more and more of my own homebrew content, and this is building up to a world that I've called Estia. So at the start of the campaign, you'll notice that many of the places that the characters visit are drawn from that Galarian setting, many of the deities that are referred to are from the Galarian setting. However, as we move on, I'll begin to introduce my own settings, my own concepts, in a hopelessly seamless manner, but we'll see. S-Theory is also a setting for which I'm beginning to write original content in terms of short stories. Hopefully I'm going to be publishing a web series soon. Uh, I'll mention more on that as that develops. The party for this campaign has settled at three core players. The party has been as many as seven and players have rotated during that time. But I'll introduce you to the three core players and then as other player characters enter and leave the campaign, we'll talk about them as they're there. So let's get to know the party. Firstly, we have De Jack, a mighty half orc barbarian whose ancestry contains a spark of green dragon blood. His story began searching for his mother after she left their village, taking with her the sacred war axe of their tribe. The sacred weapon that only the chosen champions born once every few hundred years could wield. The stories tell of each tribe's champion competing in a grand tournament, the winner of which gains the title of war chief and rules over the tribe until the time of their passing. Each previous war chief is said to have united the tribes at vital points in history, and led their people to glory. De Jack sets out to find his mother and claim what he believes to be his birthright. Secondly, we have Alibuk Zodspark, Gnomish champion of the imperial lord and the letter. Though small in stature, Alibuk has always strived to do what he believes is right and lawful. Though this can often be bent in the surface of the party's current goals, Alibuk keeps his past close to his chest, Though keen observers with knowledge of gnomes will notice he is experiencing the early stages of the bleaching, a phenomenon whereby a gnome, who has remained without new excitement and experiences too long, begins to lose the vibrant pigmentation of their hair and skin. Alibuk is travelling to spread the word of his faith and keep his spark alive. Finally, we have Lutze, a human monk displaced in time. Loom at the party soon after they have formed, drawn in by hazy memories of a battle in a temple and the destruction of a sacred artefact throwing him into the past. Remembering only the face of the man with whom he fought, his first encounter with the party sparked memories of that encounter. Since then, he's been traveling with them, trying to piece together the fragments of his shattered memory. So, session one of the campaign. In this session, Jack and Alabuck are joined by two other players, the first of which is Dar Dimplefoot, Halfling Rogue. Now, Those of you who are familiar with tabletop RPGs will likely be familiar with the halfling rogue stereotype. Kleptomaniac steals from everyone including the party, only out for themselves. And if you're aware of that stereotype, I don't need to explain any more about Dar Dimplefoot. The second player was Jezebel. Elven druid, accompanied by her snow leopard pet Lyra. Both of them are searching for the people responsible for burning down part of their forest home. In order to prepare for the session, I told my players to come with their characters and to keep in mind the opening scenario, that they've been hired as guards accompanying a caravan from Magnamar to Sandpoint. Those of you keeping track of the Galarian settings will recognize those names. I asked that they come with reasons that their characters would be on the journey, such as searching for something, running from something, just in it for the money, but other than that they could do whatever they wanted. The opening of the session saw them introduced to their employer, a human male by the name of Ebriel, and his driver, A dwarven male by the name of Jeb. They were given the opportunity to introduce their characters and get to know the NPCs. However, being new to role-playing, the conversation was a little stilted, but that's to be expected. The true action started once the caravan had parked and settled for the night. Anticipating that I, the GM, might throw something at them, the players organised taking shifts, one after the other, and soon fell asleep. On Jeb's shift, however, the party was suddenly awoken. Oh, everyone, everyone wake up, please, please, we're under attack! The party wake up amidst a sea of scales and spears, Cobalt looting the caravan and running off into the forest. In the light of the campfire, the party can barely make out the figures, like tiny bipedal dragons, the firelight playing off scales of all different colours. Ebrior begins to shout at them, What's going on here? You! What am I paying you for? Do your jobs after them! And the party run off after them into the forest, arriving at a dark cave. This sparks a conversation amongst the party. Is this really worth what we're getting into? How much are we getting paid, anyway? That comment coming from our barbarian, Dejak, who will, in later sessions, pick up the affectionate nickname of the Ore Countant, always responsible for the party's inventory list and money. Eventually, they take the bait. The party follow the kobolds into the cave and find two waiting for them. A quick fight helps them get to grips with rolling to attack versus armor class, as well as looting the bodies for treasure and valuables. Those of the party who are familiar with video games are surprisingly adept at this. Moving further into the cave, they come across a trash pile, full of bits of old meals, bones, straps of leather, generally disgusting. However, this introduces them to perception checks, searching for things which aren't immediately obvious. A rummage through the trash pile rewards the party with their first chest of goods. At this point, Dimplefoot, our resident rogue, asks me about opening the chest to look at its contents. Sparks an interesting conversation amongst the group. Could they get the chest open and closed without their employer finding out? At times like this, I like to fall back on the classic GM line, you can certainly try, which always causes a few looks of panic and greed. They decide to open the crate, and inside they find bolts of fabric. None amongst the party really have an idea of how much this fabric is worth, so they seal the crate to the best of their ability and move on. Through the gloom of the cave, they come upon what looks like a mess hall with rows of benches and another two kobolds sat eating with their backs to the party. Being smart, they quickly set up a sneak attack and catch the kobolds unawares, earning them a surprise round. During the fight, Dar discovers a second crate and decides to rummage through its contents while the others fight. Much to the annoyance of the party. Again, he doesn't find anything of particular interest to him, so the crates are sealed and the party move on. Two down, three to go the party move deeper into the cavern, discovering what looks like a farm of mushrooms after a fork in the path. Upon investigating, they disturb a giant centipede nest. The enormous, segmented chitinous beasts rising into the air and clicking their mandibles and claws menacingly, the fight serving to introduce them to the concepts of poison effects and diseases. Still unperturbed, they carry on into the cave, bringing them to a crossroads. To their right, murmured voices and flickering candlelight on the walls, To the left, a strange door set into the stone of the cavern. The door is made of a different stone to the rock of the cave, and very intentional. Above the door, green fire exists in the semicircle, and a human skull sits atop the things we do to distract our players from the main plot. However, the party decide that the murmurs and the candlelight are much more important at this point, and peek around the corner. When they do, they come across an unusual sight, a male dwarf standing atop an altar, shouting at a crowd of kobolds in front of him. The dwarf keeps his hand on one of the hatchets sheathed at his waist, and with the other, he points as if to punctuate his orders. He's telling the kobolds to bring the crates to him, asking them why they would think to leave them in different parts of the cave. Next to the dwarf, a woman lies crumpled on the floor, holding her face as if she's just been slapped. What the party do next establishes their M.O. for rushing in before they get any details. Weapons are drawn and they advance on the dwarf and his minions. Alibuk Sodspark pleads with them. Please, there's no need to fight. Give us the woman and no one needs to get hurt. The dwarf laughs at him. <laughs> Who are the four of you to come in here and threaten me in front of my minions? Deal with them. With a the flick of the wrist, the kobolds charge. And so begins the first boss fight of the campaign. A fairly simple fight so that the players don't lose too much HP and they decide to come back and play with me again. However, obsessing over how many hit points he has left will soon become a noticeable trait for Dejak, despite having the largest HP pool in the party. The fight highlights to the party the value of action economy. Many more enemies means many more spears being swung at you, and a stronger opponent in the dwarf leader gives them a little more to contend with than they've become used to. Dejak rages, swinging his axe. Alibuk slips inside their reach with his rapier. Jezebel peppers them with arrows from her bow. Dar looks around for more crates. The party, the players, anyway, screaming at him. Dar, you have sneak attack. While the enemies are occupied with us, get round the back of them and stab them. Nah, I think the crates are more important right now. So Dar inspects the two crates he finds in the room. In one of them, he finds a bunch of figurines. Porcelain, perhaps? He pockets a couple and reseals the crate joining the party as the fight winds down. Once the kobolds and dwarf has been dispatched, the bodies are looted and treasures pocketed. Jack and Alibuck approach the woman. They find out that her name is Inara, and she's from a nearby village called Hugh. She was abducted nearly a week ago by this dwarf and his minions, and just wants to get home. In the flickering candlelight, the party can see that her eyes are completely white, though she still seems to be able to see everything that's going on. A quick use of the detect magic cantrip reveals no magical aura about her. However, there does seem to be some strange, but very incredibly faint, power resonating from her. This is what they call a plot hook. The party start to discuss, albeit out of character, what is going on. The GM wouldn't describe her in such detail and imbue her with a magical aura if she wasn't significant. You'd think that, wouldn't you? While this is going on, Jezebel and Dar return to the strange door. Dar turns to me and asks how he goes about detecting traps. We discuss. He rolls. So what do I find? Well, you don't see any traps. What does that mean? It means you don't see any traps. During this discussion, Jezebel becomes impatient or perhaps enamoured with the green glowing fire above the door and decides to touch it, triggering the trap. Balls of green fire launch at herself and Dar. Reflex saves a rolled. She passes. He doesn't. Cue a very strong argument between Dar and Jezebel about the danger of touching magical doors, especially when there's green fire above them. The Jack and Alibuk return with Inara, stating that there's still one crate left to be found. There's very realistic talk of just abandoning the last crate and going back to Ebril with what they have. However, Alibuk pushes them forwards. They have a job to do. They're getting paid for this. And so they continue on into the cave. They come to a dead end. A dead end apart from the stone blocks which have been pushed inwards and now reside on the floor. Again, the stone blocks that do not match the stone of the cavern. They have very intentionally been made and laid here. The party, again for some reason expecting that I, as the GM, will spring something on them, throw a lit torch onto the stone floor beyond. As they do, the sound of shuffling and moaning starts. Zombies, the players cry, in a very metagamey kind of way but still they enter. The party make quick work of the Shambling unbed, liberating them of their limbs, and inside the tomb they find not only the final chest, but also a chest of goodies, possibly put here when the bodies were buried. Scrolls, gems, gold, and potions. All valuable to them in their continuing adventures. At the bottom of a chest also sits a stone statuette, the iconography on which is identified by Alibuk as belonging to the Church of Saranray. This too is taken by the party. Perhaps there'll be a potential reward for returning it to the church. The party pack up, and head back to Ebriel. He inspects the crates, and is satisfied that they've returned the number that was stolen. Nothing is said about the slightly strange way that they've been resealed, yet the wagon is loaded up, and the party continue on to Sandpoint, which is where the session ends. And that's the end of session one. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about the party's first adventure, and we'll come back for session two, when the party arrive in Sandpoint, they discuss their pay, they meet a new friend, and they get assigned their new job. If you'd like more content and like to be kept abreast of when I post additions to this podcast series, please follow me on Twitter at BardReally. On the other hand, if you would like to see some of the miniature models I have painted for use during these campaigns, please look me up on Instagram at ReallyBardIdeas. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you soon for Session 2, Finding Fans.